in Ephesians chapter 2 as we're going through the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2 this evening. Did you guys have a good day? Yeah. Middle of the week. Anybody feeling tired? Yeah. It happens, doesn't it? So let's pray. Pray that God would refresh us this evening. Father, as we go through this chapter and look at your truth, we pray that your truth would go through us, that we would be reminded of your grace, remind us of what you've saved us from. We pray if, for anyone that doesn't know you, that tonight would be the night that you would call them by name, that they would be saved. God, we wait upon you and we recognize your presence with us. And God, we ask that you would speak through your word and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Made alive. That's what God has done for us. He's made us alive. We're dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses. And a lot of times people are looking to feel alive, aren't they? And it may be in a relationship. They know it's destructive. They know it's going to ultimately lead to brokenness and pain, but they want to feel alive. So they'll enter into a relationship. For some, it's drugs, it's alcohol. Heroin addiction is off the charts. More and more people are finding themselves in that place where they just want to feel alive. Some people describe the first time that they took heroin as this overwhelming sense that they're home and there's this emptiness in their life and so they'll do anything to feel alive even if it means uh, taking heroin. And then we find people, oh, I just got to have that car. I would feel alive if I had that car. You watch some of those ads and they look so alive as they're driving in this brand new car. So you go out and can't afford it and you buy it and sure enough, got the car payments and you're driving and all of a sudden you're like, man, I don't feel so alive, you know? <laughs> Sometimes it's drinking a gallon of coffee to try to feel alive, amen? It's like, oh man, I just feel so sluggish. I just need some coffee. I need something to get me going. But ultimately, all of those things are a counterfeit, aren't they? They're a counterfeit. That they're not going to cause us to feel alive the way that we desire, the way that God created us to. And I think that's why you're here on a Wednesday night in March, because you know the secret of being alive is what Christ has done for you and what he is doing in our lives. And so Paul writes this wonderful chapter to the church of Ephesus that shows us how we're made alive in Christ. And it begins with reminding us of our spiritual condition, of what our life was like before we knew Christ as our Savior. So verse 1, And he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we're alive from the dead. When we think about Christ making us alive, we're alive from the dead. And we think about our spiritual condition before we knew Christ as our Savior, and the Scripture tells us that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And those words are similar, trespass and sin, but there is a difference. Trespass is willfully stepping over a line. It's seeing a, a sign that says no trespassing. Private property. It's clearly posted, and you say, I don't care. I'm going to step over that line. I'm going to enter into it. I'm going to do it anyway. And a lot of times we do that with the Lord. It's clear. It's willful disobedience. Trespass. And then sin, in the Greek, it means to miss the mark. It's not that you intended to sin. It wasn't willful rebellion unto God, but we missed the mark. And God tells us that we're dead in our trespasses, 
dead in our sins, and that he made us alive. And this is obvious, but I just want you to think about it for a moment. If something or someone is dead, the only way is for them to come back to life if they're indeed going to have life. And so that's the condition that we were in. We were dead, absolutely dead in our trespasses and sins. And in order for us to be alive, God couldn't remodel us. He couldn't go, okay, well, you're dead in your sins and your trespasses, so you just need a remodel, or you need some behavior modification. You just, you need a, a new software uploaded, downloaded to, to your system. The only way for us to come to life was to take us from death and bring us to life. I think of Lazarus in the gospel. He died, he's buried for three days, In the grave, Jesus comes, speaks the words. Mary and Martha are completely broken. What did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. He was dead as a doornail. Jesus intentionally waited three days, waited for that decaying process to take place to show his power not only over death, but over the decaying process to bring life where there's death. And here's Lazarus. He comes out and his grave clothes. They're so blown away. They're so shocked. No one unwraps him. They just leave him wrapped up in this zombie-like state. And Jesus has to instruct them, go ahead and take off his, his grave clothes. He had died physically and was brought back to life physically. We were dead spiritually. Think about before you knew Christ as your Savior. You were dead And then Christ, he called you by name. He brought you to himself. He caused you to be alive. He made you alive. You were dead and now that you're alive. But some of you maybe haven't come to that place of receiving Christ as your savior, responding to his work upon the cross. And you're a dead man walking, spiritually. Spiritually, you're walking around dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses. And that's why Jesus says we must be born again. Because we've been born once physically, but then we have to be born spiritually. We've got to go from this spiritual state of being dead to being made alive by Christ. In verse 2, in what you once walked according to the course of this world. So before we knew Christ as our Savior, we're walking. It's speaking of lifestyle. When you see the word walk in Scripture, it's talking about a lifestyle. We just went along with the course of this world. And the world is speaking of a system. It's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And we just went right along with it. The wind was blowing in that direction. The stream, the current was going in that way. And we just went right along with it. There was no resistance to it. But notice it's past tense. And once you once walked according to this world, God's brought us out of that lifestyle. According to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is called the prince and the power of the air. And when it's talking about the air, it's not about the physical air that we breathe, but the spiritual environment. And so we've got this air, this spiritual environment that's around the world, and the prince of that is Satan because of sin, the fallenness of sin. Jesus, two times in the Gospels, called Satan the ruler of this world. This is John chapter 12. It says, now, is this the judgment of this world? Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, 
will draw all peoples to myself. He's speaking of Satan. Satan will be cast out. I will no longer talk much with you. This is John 16. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Also, Satan's called the father of lies, the God of this age. So the scripture is very clear that of this earth, Satan has influence. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Satan is defeated. God is all-powerful. God's not intimidated by Satan. Satan's no match for Jesus Christ. But we do have to understand, because it's biblical, that Satan has a certain level of influence in this world. We were under that influence. When we were dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses, we were in that place where we were following the course of this world, the prince of the air. He was having his way with us. Part of this reminder is our own condition that we were dead and God made us alive. It's very important to remember what God saved us from, but it also gives us compassion for those that don't know Christ as their savior. You know, sometimes you can kind of be in the club so long you forget what it's like to not be in the club. Or we're safe for so long we forget what it was like before we were saved. We, we forget that Satan's having his way with unbelievers. Do you see the influence of Satan throughout the world today? Absolutely. His mission statement is to steal, to kill, and destroy. John 10, Jesus told us that. And we look around and he's having his way with families, isn't he? Satan's destroying families. Satan has perverted sexuality. It's twisted in the minds of people that don't know Christ as their savior. There's so much evil that's done out of the love of money just the greed to have more money. People will be human trafficked and sex slaves just to to have more money. Well, what's behind all that? There's something very real behind it. What's the wickedness of our community? There's kind of the face of Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs just recently got nominated as the fifth best city to live in in the United States of America. And I agree, it's a great place to live. I don't know of any other place that I would, would rather live. People that aren't from here think that we're the new Bible Belt. But when you look at the statistics, there's a lot of unreached people right here in the Springs. If you live here, you know that, right? There's a lot of people that don't know Christ as their Savior. There's a lot of wickedness that's, that's taken place. Today, I took a, a walk around the block of our church, just kind of started out this back alley, went over this way, walked down behind us, Austin Bluffs, came over on Academy, And I felt really small in the midst of all the cars going by, you know. There's a lot happening just on the block of this intersection of Austin Bluffs and Academy. It's not always good. And it's not always pretty. And Satan is at work. And that's why people are the way that they are. they're, They're giving into the influence of Satan. It says, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So he's alive and well working his destruction, in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So before we were saved, what did we do? We willfully gave ourselves over to sin, to the work of the flesh. There was no struggle with sin. I was like, I don't know, should I do this or should I not do this? It was just like, yeah, I'm going to go for it. And sometimes we need to be reminded that sinners are going to sin. 
We can't take the standard that's placed upon believers and put it on an unbeliever. What's an unbeliever going to do? They're going to follow their sinful nature. They're going to give in to the lusts of the flesh. As we read through this, though, we've been called out of that stream. We've been saved out of that stream. We once were conducting ourselves in that manner, but now God has made us alive. Because we walked according to our flesh, it made us children of wrath. That means that we were deserving of God's punishment. It was righteous for God to pour out his punishment upon us. Hell has become really controversial, and I understand it's a difficult teaching of Scripture. But when we don't believe in hell, God separating sinners from himself for all of eternity, we undermine the holiness of God, and we undermine how bad our sin is. Like, this isn't a label that anybody wants to wear. I'm a child of wrath, you know? I was dead in my trespasses, dead in my sins. I mean, could we honestly go to God and say, God, you would be completely just in sending me to hell? That's how bad my sin is. That's a hard thing to swallow, isn't it? That if it wasn't for Christ's sacrifice and his grace, that's what I deserve. It wouldn't be evil of God. It wouldn't be unrighteous of God for him to pour out his judgment upon me. So we were dead and God made us alive, completely dead. And how did he do it? And that's what we find in verse five, or excuse me, verse four. It's alive by grace. So first, alive from the dead and we're alive by grace. Grace is the means in which God made us alive and gave us the gift of salvation. But God, verse four, speaks of the intervention of God. So here we have this really bleak picture of our sin. And God intervenes in his love for us. But God, when you see these two words in scripture connected, pay attention because it shows us something amazing and wonderful that God has done for us. If this truth, this reality is not here in scripture, what hope would there be for us if God didn't intervene? If he just looked at me and said, well, Eric's dead in his trespasses and sins. He's a child of wrath. He's given over to his sinful flesh. The influence of Satan, he's done. There's no hope. What if God did that for a sinful world? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God is rich in mercy. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. So we know we deserve judgment, but God, because he's rich in mercy, chose not to give us judgment. God never goes bankrupt on mercy. Here we are in history, sinful, depraved, and yet God has mercy for us. He's got love for us. He's rich in mercy. Notice it's because of his mercy that he chooses to give salvation. It's inside of himself, his character and his kindness because of the great love which he loved us. When did God choose to love us? When we were dead in our trespasses, completely dead. In our sins, going along with this sinful world. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing. And the scripture says his love is great. Colossal understatement, isn't it? There's not words that we can to describe it. The best that we can do is go, God's love is massive. God's love is great. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. He was motivated by his love to give us this grace to make us alive. As we receive this grace, hopefully we begin to see the world this way. It's so easy to get frustrated with people that don't know Christ as their Savior. Why don't they get it? You know, why do they act this way? Why do they believe this? It doesn't even make any sense. And their hearts are are so hard. But if we remember our condition, the way that we were before we received Christ as our Savior, and to realize that God loves us in that sinful state, that he proved his love for us while we were sinners, that God would give us a heart for sinners. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So there you have it. God has made us alive. If you've responded in faith to the free gift of Jesus Christ, he's made you alive. Now, you may not always feel alive. Maybe didn't come into Wednesday night Bible study just feeling all of the juices of life flowing through your bones. It may feel like more you're surviving than, than really being alive. But compare it to your life before Christ. Compare it to what your days were like before you received him as your savior. If you're like me and you received Christ at a young age, compare it to people in your life that you know now that don't know Christ, that don't believe in Christ. The hopelessness, the lack of purpose, the lack of joy, the lack of peace. I'm really thankful in my life that I can't remember a day where I didn't know of the name of Jesus Christ. That was God's grace in my life. But I still had a hard heart. Elementary school, junior high, opposed to the things of God. And it was radical to see the difference of when Christ made me alive in his grace. So it doesn't mean that there's no difficulties in life. It doesn't mean that we don't get tired, that we don't get weary. But compare it to who you were before you were in Christ. Compare it to those that you know that that aren't saved. And he's made us alive together with Christ, and then by grace you're saved. And Paul's going to expound on that more in just a moment. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we're as low as low can get. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And God's grace is so thorough, it's so immense, that it's picked us up, it's lifted us up to where he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Three words I want you to remember in the book of Ephesians. It's sit, walk, and stand. It's seeing the grace of God that he's caused us to be seated with Christ in the heavens. And when we know that position in Christ, then that leads to chapter four when we're called to walk worthy of our calling. So we have to learn to sit in God's grace before we can walk worthy of God's calling. It's belief before behavior. And then finally, stand. I'm gonna stand in the power of God's might. Those three words, sit, walk, and stand. Why does the scripture say that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places? Because to be sitting down is a position of rest. You probably have that place in your house that's your chair. At least you dudes do, right? Us dudes, we have our our chair where we like to sit and put up our feet and maybe watch some football, right? You know? I love chips and salsa. I love to sit down and get a big old bowl of salsa and some chips and just enjoy and sit and be able to, to rest. I also love coffee. I sit in the same chair and drink coffee. It was a beautiful this morning this morning, though it was cold. 
little bit of snow, looking out into the backyard, just sitting and enjoying and, and resting. So why does God say that we're seated in the heavens? Because it's a position of rest. Because of the grace of God, we're not working for our salvation. From God's perspective, he's not looking down going, I wonder if they're going to make it, you know. He knows that we're going to make it. He who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. From God's perspective, we're already there. We're already complete. He sees us glorified. In a small level, sometimes can't we see things in our kids that they can't see in themselves yet? You know? They, they can't see it, but we can see it because we're their parents. How much more does God, because he's God, he's not limited by time. He's, you're going to make it. You're already seated in heavenly places. You're going to get through this life. And as we go through all of the earthly things, we have to remember our position in Christ. We've been seated in heavenly places. We're justified, we're forgiven, we're glorified. It's all because of our position in Christ. How did this take place? In verses seven and eight, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So for all of eternity, God's gonna be blowing our minds with the greatness and the riches of his grace. So grace doesn't stop here in this life. All of eternity, he's going to be pouring out grace upon us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. How could God take us from being dead in our trespasses to being seated in the heavens? There's one reason, and it's grace. And you're saved by grace through faith. In grace, a good understanding of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's free to us, but it cost Christ his life. It cost him everything. God gave his son. So God is rich in mercy, not giving us judgment, but he's also rich in grace that we're saved through grace. In order to have that grace put to our account, appropriated, we have to receive it through faith. This isn't universalism. It's not this belief that, well, everybody's going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. No, God has died on the cross and rose again for everyone, but we have to appropriate it. What good's a gift card if you don't use it? Ever lost that gift card? Neglected that gift card? It never gets used. Why do companies love to sell gift cards? Because their profit margins through the roof. They're going to roll the dice that you're going to forget about that gift card and you're going to never go take, take advantage of it. You can hear of God's grace, know of God's grace, share God's grace with others, but you appropriate it through faith. And Romans 10 verse 9 tells us that we have to believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead. So you know and God knows. You know your heart and God knows your heart. You know if you've trusted Christ for salvation, if you believe that he's God, that he died for your sins and rose again, but you also know in your heart if you've never received the forgiveness of God that comes through faith in the blood of Jesus, being convicted of your sin. Now, if you don't know that you're a sinner, if you don't believe that you're a sinner, what are you being saved from? Jesus isn't just a social club. You know, he's not just a, a place to go have fun and meet good people. That, that's not it at all. We're sinners, 
and we turn from our sin, we repent from our sin, we cry out to Christ, Jesus, save me. I'm receiving your grace. I'm receiving that free gift of of salvation. And that's the way that salvation comes to us. And notice in verse eight, it's a gift of God. So faith isn't a work. Faith isn't something that we do to earn or deserve it. Faith is simply the means in which we receive the gift. And God is freely offering that gift to us. In verse nine, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So God's really clear that we're not saved by our works. Because if we were saved by our works, then we could boast. Well, I'm in heaven because I'm a good person. I'm in, I'm in heaven because I've worked hard or I've been better than someone else. If we really understand the first three verses of Ephesians 2 and how far we've fallen, there's no way that we can be saved by works. It's not even possible. I can't make up for my sin. I can't make up for this debt. God's standard is absolute perfection. You know what's different about Christianity and the teaching of Christ than false religions is the others are works-based. You never really know if you're saved. You never really know if you've done enough. If you're saved by works, then how good does your batting average have to be? Is 500 good enough? If you could bat 500% and that would be awesome. I'll be great. No, you've got to bat 1,000. You got to be perfect. And so when you're looking at false religions, you have to see, well, what's the message of salvation? It's always going to be works, but Christ extends it through grace that we receive by faith. I love how it goes right into verse 10. We're alive by the grace of God, but what are we alive for? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works are in the equation, but good works are not what saves us. We're responding to the grace that we've been given with a desire to walk in the good works. Verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship. In the Greek, the word's poema. We get our English word poem as the idea of masterpiece. We're God's work of art. We're God's poetry. So think of God with his pen authoring our salvation and writing the story of our lives. And what does he do? As we're his workmanship, he created us in Christ Jesus for good works. Not so that we could be saved, but so that we could respond to the goodness of God, that same grace flowing through us, And our job is to then walk in them. Our job is to respond to those good works and say yes to those opportunities that God has given to us. What's incredible about verse 10, the grace of God, what we're alive for, we're alive for good works, is that God prepared it beforehand. So before you were even saved, before you were even the child of God, God gets out his pen and he's writing his story and he's like, oh, this is some good works that I've got for you. This is some ways that I want to use your life. Use some ways that I want to glorify myself through, through your story. Sitting the bench is no fun. If you ever played sports growing up, played a little bit of baseball, a lot of basketball, was not so good at baseball. You know, that little white ball trying to hit that ball. So I'd always get stuck out in right field playing baseball. Now in Little League, that's the worst position. You know why? Because nothing ever happens in right field. 
Never happens. So I would sit on the bench for my half the game, and then in Little League, everybody just has to play, so then the coach would put me in and stick me out in right field. And they call it picking daisies, because nothing's happening. So you're just out there, and you know, being a 10-year-old boy or a 9-year-old boy, you're just kind of like, oh, you know, and hoping that something's going to happen, and you might pick your nose a little bit, who knows, you know, you're, you're a 9-year-old boy, and kind of mess with your cleats, and and then the ball finally comes to you and you're not paying attention and it goes right over your head, right? <laughs> and I bet that some of you feel like that's kind of your role in the kingdom. Well, they just kind of put me on the bench and they stick me out in right field. And this, this verse is for somebody else. I've kind of heard enough that God has this great, glorious plan for my life. Is that what verse 10 said? Did verse 10 say, God has a great and glorious plan for your life. It said that God has prepared good works for you beforehand. Do you know what good works sounds like? It sounds like work. (laughs) God has put opportunities of work in front of us to glorify himself, and sometimes it's not very pretty. Sometimes it's not real glamorous. Most times people are not writing, lining up to write books about our lives. But God is glorified if we'll choose to walk in those good works that he's prepared beforehand. Don't overcomplicate it. Are there good things to be done at your job tomorrow? Can you get up and do that to the glory of God? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it wholeheartedly for God's glory. Yes, there is good works to be done. Are there good works to be done in our home? Absolutely. It may look like the dishwasher. It may look like the trash can. It may look like the laundry. It may look like a kind word. Well, that's not what God saved me for. He saved me for crazy love. He saved me for radical living. You know, I've got I've to do something radical for this to mean. Well, it would be radical to your spouse if you unloaded the dishwasher. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Getting some amens out there. Now, is there anything wrong with some crazy step of faith that God may call us to? Is there anything wrong with some radical living? Absolutely not. But God doesn't grade on a scale. It's not that, that one is greater than the other. And I know in my life, it's, it's easy to leave out the simple. It's easy to leave out that thing that is right in front of me. But we're going to be alive with God when we choose to walk in those good things that he has given us to do. It just feels right. It's breath into our lungs. We go, oh, this isn't easy. This is difficult, but I wouldn't trade it. I know that this is what God would have me to do, and I'm going to step inside of it, and I'm going to do it for the glory of God. Has God been stirring you in some way? where There is a good work that has been presented before you in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, inside of the church. It may seem that at Rocky Mountain Calvary that all the needs are met and everything's running smoothly. And the reality of it is, is we're hanging on by a thread. You know, we're coming Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday saying, okay, Lord, do your thing. I hope that all the needs are met. I hope that all the children's ministry, there's people there to love them and and serve them. I bet, okay, here's this, here's that. There's, there's things to be done as God places it upon your heart. You can pick up a volunteer application and say, I'm going to start serving. 
God, I know that you've put good works in, in front of me, and so I'm going to step inside of, of those good works. I think that this is expressed, this idea of walking in the good works that God has prepared for us by Eric Little. And Eric Little was an Olympic athlete, and he chose to not run on the, the Sabbath day. And that was a big story back, back in the day. He was also praying about being a missionary. So he's kind of trying to decide what good works that God had called him to. And don't you ever try to figure that out? Like, I know in general God's called me to good works, but what am I supposed to devote my life to? And he had this heart for missions in, in, in China. But he also liked to run. And his sister's like, why are you running? Why are you trying to be an Olympic athlete? You should be on the mission field. You should be in China. And this is how Eric Little responded. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose. Do you believe that? God made you for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He says, how do I know what God wants me to do? When I run, I feel God's pleasure. So he ran, and he ran for God's glory. God's grace was on display. Once his Olympic career was done, he ended up going on the mission field to China. What are the good works that God has prepared for you to do? Where do you feel God's pleasure? When you get in there and you serve in children's ministry, do you feel God's pleasure? And those are probably the good works that God has, has called you to. When you crunch numbers for Jesus Christ, do you feel God's good pleasure? Man, God has gifted you to be an accountant because not everybody feels God's pleasure when they crunch numbers, right? So you start to begin to think, where am I gifted? Where has God given me gifts that he can be glorified? And then run. Hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Run. Walk in those good works that God has called you to. But I've got to tell you, not every opportunity is going to feel where you experience God's pleasure. Sometimes you do. And other times it's a choice of obedience, of saying, if I'm honest, I don't feel like doing this. I've never met anybody that's been gifted to take out the trash. Have you? You know? What does verse 10 say? It says good works. And so, okay, Lord, I, I know this isn't an area of gifting. This is just something that needs to be done. It's a good work, and I want to walk in it for your glory. So the rest of the chapter really shows us the importance of how this grace is manifested in our lives. It results in the unification of the believer, the unity inside of the body of Christ. It results in God being our habitation. So good works is expanded. In verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made it in the flesh by hand. So that verse 11, therefore, so here's the good works that God has responded to us. So instead of rushing through the rest of this chapter, I'm going to save it for next week. And I'm going to give you the gift of time. I'm going to end early tonight, but I do not want to just blow through the rest of this chapter. It's too good to blow through. So let's end in worship. Let's end in communion. Let's end in enjoying the grace of God, remembering what God has saved us from, that he's made us alive. And as we prepare for communion, I want to ask you the honest question do you know Christ as your Savior? Who do you believe that Jesus is? And I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to, to the grace of God. 
Think of Jesus dying upon the cross, a brutal death, his beard ripped out, he spit upon, crown of thorns put upon his head. He cried out to the Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He took the price for your sins upon the cross. But have you been aware of your sin? Or have you been justifying yourself, saying, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I think I can be saved by works. And tonight, will you respond? Will you turn from your sin, turn to Christ, and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting that you paid for the price for my sin, that you died, that you rose again. I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand, to respond right now, to respond publicly, to make that decision, to say, I'm putting my faith and trust in Christ. I'm experiencing the grace of God. So let's pray, and if that's you tonight, and you need to be saved and trust Christ, please do so. Father, as we spend time meditating upon your grace and your goodness, we pray that it would resonate in our hearts and our lives. Jesus, you know our hearts. You know those who have turned to you and trusted you for salvation and those who have not yet done that. And would you, by your grace, show your love? Would you bring salvation in a way that only you can?